to Women's Sports Central. I'm Brenda Van Lingen along with Michelle Vopel, and uh, we've been away this summer. Uh, Michelle and I have had a busy summer, and so thanks for hanging with us as we took a little break from the show, but uh, it's the fall, and we're going to review a little bit today what we've been doing this summer and and, uh, talk about what's going on in the world of women's sports, and we appreciate you joining us today. Michelle, I've We've kind of uh, been all over the world this summer. It's been a busy summer. It has. I just heard you say fall, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what happened? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, last time we talked, I think, uh, uh, my little tomato plants were just starting to grow, and uh, now they're gigantic, and been, have, they've been very bountiful. Bountiful. So, uh, nice. It has, been, it has been a long time, and it's been nice because we have gotten a – opportunity both of us to see a lot of different great elite athletes in different sports and uh, that's been a lot of fun yeah it really has Um, I had the opportunity earlier this summer to go to the world university games that were competed in uh, Kazan Russia and uh, you know just to be there for the United States team winning uh, the women's basketball team winning the uh, gold medal and Cherry Cole was the head coach of that team and and, uh, you know, a lot of really familiar faces, uh, Brianna Hartley and Kalina Mosqueda-Lewis, of course, from uh, UConn. Odyssey Sims uh, was the most valuable player of the tournament. Jordan Hooper uh, from Nebraska, her first time on a USA basketball team and started in the gold medal team, uh, gold medal game and was a big part of their success. It was just, it was really cool to be be there and see that and in, in, in many ways very surreal to be in Russia and and watch a United States team compete against Russia on um, you know on their home turf and uh, it was just it was a great experience and then uh, I came back and then you went to the British Open and then we both had an opportunity to go to the Solheim Cup and I know you've also taken in some WNBA games but your trip um, to the British Open had to have been pretty special. It was a lot of fun uh, which you know sometimes I think people see that we travel all over the place and and think that it's always fun. And sometimes it isn't as fun. I'll I'll be honest with you. It depends on the location and (laughs) a lot of times the way things are set up at the location. But the Women's British Open was uh, just a fantastic um, opportunity to see what's, you know, sort of usually referred to as the birthplace of golf. And it was, you know, I'm a huge history buff, not just – sports history, but history in general. And as I know you enjoy history a lot too, Brendan. So when you're at a course where, you know, they were, you know, playing there back in the 1500s, it's, and then you're, you know, walking around this little town of St. Andrews, which was also a huge part of the fun of it was just seeing St. Andrews, the town, and you're seeing ruins that date back, you know, to the 1200s and sometimes even before that. It's, it's really profound because we live, um, not just in the United States, but in the central United States, where really you don't see a lot that dates a lot that dates back even to the 1800s. You sure, know, that's old yeah, here. Right. So, uh, so there, you know, to go another 300 or 400 or even 500 or 600 years further back than that is is pretty amazing. And so I think when you know when you go on a trip like that, it's the you know, just the opportunity to see the area is great. And then the golf ended up being very exciting. The reason I went there, of course, was that Indy Park from South Korea was going for a fourth consecutive major. 
Cubs. It turned out she didn't get that. But Stacey Lewis, the American player, who's uh, number two in the world, ended up winning her second major. So that was exciting to see as well because, uh, you know, the Americans were on a drought in majors, a 10-major drought since they'd won, and Stacey had actually been the last to win a major. So they were able to sort of end that drought, and, um, you know, then that set us up for the Solheim Cup. Right, and uh, I actually went uh, just as a fan. Um, uh, Some friends of mine had it on their bucket list to go to the Solheim Cup, and uh, it was in Colorado, so it was an easy flight from Kansas City, and uh, it just seemed like something fun to do. I've actually never attended a a professional golf event, you know, in person. And so to go to the Solheim Cup and the, you know, just the atmosphere, kind of the craziness of uh, the fans really getting into it and cheering between the USA and Europe and uh, just just everything about it. Getting to see up close uh, really, uh, uh, really great players. And I know the best players in the world weren't there, and we can talk a little bit about that with the format of the Solheim Cup. But just the opportunity to be there for me was fun because some you know I, I don't often get a chance to just go and be a fan and and take it all in and as you saw me there my my friends actually took a a, a red and white stars and stripe cap and put a pipe cleaner on the top and shaped it into a flag stick and then stuck a needle through a a rubber golf ball and stuck it on the top of the hat. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I got into the crazy American fan uh, deal because I had to wear my hat along with all of my friends. Um, but it, it was really, it was fun. It was fun to be there. It was disappointing in some ways to see, um, you know, some of the, the performances by some of the American players. But uh, I got a chance to run into you. You were there for work, of course, and you got to go to all of the uh, press conferences and talk to the players behind the scenes. And just I'm just curious your take overall on the event. It is a really fun event for spectators. I always tell people if they have a chance to go to a golf tournament, Solheim would be one they would want to go to. Although that might... In some ways, it sort of sets them up for if they think every golf tournament's like that, it it isn't. The the fan action and the singing and dancing and chanting and funny hats, uh, <laughs> those aren't those aren't common at golf tournaments. I no, think that's but no. one of the reasons people enjoy it so much. But yeah. the that was you know Brenda, I I wrote a column sort of comparing because when I was when I was watching on Saturday afternoon when Europe swept the afternoon matches, and it really became evident at that point they were going to win the Cup. They still had to actually go out and win it on Sunday, but um, it, they'd built a, almost an insurmountable lead. And I thought, wow, this is reminding me of something I was at earlier this year where kind of most people did not see it coming, and that was the Baylor-Louisville hmm. women's basketball game. And when there's an upset of a big favorite, and, and I would say, I mean, Baylor, you and I have talked about this, I mean, Baylor was a humongous favorite. I, it never honestly entered my mind that they were going to lose that game. With USA Europe, I thought, well, there's a chance. But it was a very small chance that I thought Europe was going to win. Uh, they'd never won on U.S. soil before. So I was thinking back on you know, that upset and some of the things that people said after that upset and, you know, what they thought were reasons for it. And there were some similarities between mm. between the two of them. Uh, ultimately, 
I think you give credit to the you know the team that pulled the upset. Mm-hmm. You can always find the flaws uh, because there always are some when a when a favorite loses. But you know, in the end, the, the the team that pulls the upset, the underdog, has to do a lot right. Whatever you think of that Baylor uh, Louisville game, and you and I know people think a lot of things about <laughs> that game. Yep. But whatever you think of it. Louisville made 16 three-pointers. Exactly. And that, ultimately, they won the game by one point. So, you know, if Louisville has a great day from three-point range, they don't win. A great day, you know, 12 three-pointers. Right. They had to have a phenomenal day to win, and they did. Mm -hmm. If Europe has a really good Solheim Cup putting, they don't win. They had a terrific Solheim Cup putting and that ended up winning it for them there's always then though going to be the second guessing why did this happen why did that happen uh did usa take this for granted did they underestimate the europeans we heard the same did baylor underestimate mm-hmm. louisville um you know it's it's i think whenever there's an upset there's always that sort of post-mortem where you see things from retrospect and say oh Boy, that was that was something I you know, maybe we all should have noticed beforehand. Maybe this was a sign, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it's just a matter of, boy, on that day, or in this case, on those three days, mm-hmm. the underdog just played better. Well, and uh, and for people that didn't get a chance to see it, it was a, a three days of competition, and there were different formats in the morning and afternoon, both on Friday and Saturday. And even though Europe got off to a good start, uh, the Americans came back on Friday afternoon and Saturday morning and were within striking distance. And then on Saturday afternoon, uh, and I'd like you to discuss this a little bit, Michelle, Europe actually took a, a bit of a gamble and took out, rested some of their best players. And if you look on paper at the matchups that Saturday afternoon, it was, you know, the best players from the United States that have had the most success as far as LPGA tournament championships uh, against the least experienced players for Europe. And and my, my you know, observation, not being a, a big uh, golf expert by any means, but it was really interesting just to kind of absorb it and take it all in and that, you know, golf is obviously an individual sport, and to be then a part of a team is a different mindset than people that are used to being on in, in team sports all the time. And I know when you play college golf, you're part of a team and your scores accumulate and things like that. For, but for the most part, especially professionals, they are out improving their own game, focusing on what they do, their score, and and. And it's not good to be concerned about what everybody else is doing. You want to focus on what you do best. And it just seemed to me, and this is just my observation, that the Americans sort of had a harder time uh, playing well for the team where the Europeans really relied on one another and built on the success of each other and and played together as a team, as it were. But also the, the, the putting, as you mentioned, was phenomenal. I mean... Just putt after putt on every green, the United States often would miss and and maybe close miss and maybe not so close. And European players were nailing it every time. And that's really where the difference in the tournament was, was that Saturday afternoon when the, the rookies, a lot of the inexperienced players for Europe, really 
uh, really took it to the Americans on that Saturday afternoon. They really did, and they also did it in the format that traditionally the Americans are considered the favorites in, which is four ball. And for for the listeners who maybe are not that familiar, the Solheim Cup is is um, a, a event that goes back to 1990. It was set up as a replication of the Ryder Cup, so it's USA Europe, meaning the Asians in particular, the South Koreans aren't there, which Brent and I can touch on just in, yeah. in just a minute, because right. that is something that is, uh, I mean, that's just a, it's a storyline no matter what. But you have Europe versus USA, and the first day you have, um, you know, morning and afternoon matches in the same way as the second day, and those morning and afternoon matches are set up as what's called foursomes, which is alternate shot, meaning you hit a shot, your partner hits the next shot, you hit the next shot, which is really the you want to talk about the teamwork within teamwork mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. the Solheim Cup takes because you have to be able to get along you have to adjust your game because you know let's say your hit your partner hits a drive maybe your partner's a little bit shorter hitter than you or maybe a, a little bit longer hitter than you the the setup usually they try to pair people who are similar but sometimes you could be hitting a second shot from a place you're maybe not as familiar with hitting second shots from and right you guys have to work together. Sometimes your partner may bail you out. Sometimes you bail your partner out. So traditionally, for a lot of different reasons, and and the listeners who may be familiar with the Ryder Cup probably have heard this refrain, the thought tends to be that Europeans are a little bit stronger team players, and there could be a lot of reasons for that. Maybe it's because they become a little bit more used to depending on each other when they come over to play in the United States, because they're they're sort of helping each other out. This is not their home country. Maybe that sets up a little bit more of the team mindset than for the Americans who are at home, you know, in the United States playing. That could be it. It's it's hard to tell. Maybe it's because they're always usually perceived more as underdogs, and that makes you bond together a little bit better. Um, and I would say that's the case Ryder Cup and, and Solheim Cup. Whatever the case, usually the thought is they play a little bit better as a team, and so for foursomes, which is, you know, where you're you're hitting somebody else's ball, essentially, and they're hitting your ball, is even, tends to be a, a year, little bit stronger format for the Europeans. Four ball is just that, best ball. It's you're hitting your own ball all the way through, and your partner does, and whichever one of you scores the best on the whole is the score you take as a duo. So it's really a lot like, you know, it's much more like just normal stroke play, if you will. Mm-hmm. But that was the format that the Europeans won in. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing, Brenda, because the three most experienced and, and I would say the best European players in terms of LPGA Tour success, Suzanne Patterson, Katrina Matthew, and Anna Nordqvist, they sat out Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. So here's the, I'm telling you, behind the scenes in the press tent, when those pairings came out, you heard a lot of uh, all over the, the, the press tent. Mm. and you Because people were like, Boy, I mean, USA could sweep this. This is these are four really strong USA teams. The three, you know, best European players are not playing. Um, boy, and this the US really round. And the US had the yeah. momentum from the morning session. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, they had played better. Um, they'd won two and a half to one and a half in terms of just four points available mm-hmm. for each of those sessions. And so, uh, you know, and, and coming into the event. A lot of the Europeans play um, mostly on the European tour. 
not all of them. Suzanne Pedersen, obviously, is one of the best. She's number three in the world. So she plays mostly in the LPGA Tour. But coming into the event, you, if you looked at just LPGA titles, you had 50 among the USA players and 21 for the European players. If you go to that that afternoon, you know, again, you're taking out the very best players. So the idea that Europe is going to, you know, be able to sweep the United States, I mean, that was, uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, ridiculous was thinking that. it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you another number comparison here, Brenda. Those afternoon matches, the eight USA players that played Saturday afternoon combined had 36 LPGA Tour wins. The eight players that played for Europe combined had four. Hmm. So that's what you're looking at. Um, it, uh, it's it was just it would have seemed to be a complete blowout, mm-hmm. um, and that's not what happened. Uh, Europe ends up winning, you know, winning, uh, sweeping it, mm-hmm. and so that you know really changed the entire tenor of the event. And so it was ten and a half to five and a half going into the last day, right? That's correct. Yeah, and at that point, you only it, it, there's 28 points available total, and if it ties, the whoever is the defending champion uh, is holding on to the cup, and that was Europe. Now, some listeners may say, "Well, wait a second. Why is Europe such a big underdog if they were the defending champion?" Mm-hmm. A lot of it is that the USA had never lost on home soil. You know, this turn, this event goes back to 1990. They'd never lost. They'd always, um, you know, been able to prevail. For the most part, they'd prevailed fairly comfortably on home soil. And so, you know, the last Solheim Cup, Europe had, had surprised the United States by playing very well in singles. There's 12 singles matches on the last day. It really surprised them and played well. And kind of as Stacey Lewis, the top American golfer, said kind of, you know, they, they kind of yanked it away from us in the last second. Hmm. So that was, you combine those things and, you know, the fact, again, that there's so much more LPGA Tour winning experience on the USA side, and they did seem to be pretty big um, favorites. But like we saw with Baylor, still got to play the game, right? (laughs) And no matter how many times we as sports fans, you know, will say, well, you know, they still have to play. In the back of our minds, we kind of, you know, oh, well, we know how this is going to turn out. Right. They still have to play, and we kind of know how that's going to work out, yes. Yeah, well, it didn't and, happen that way. Well, and to me, as we wrap this up, and, and I want to talk about the international play, we'll be talking about WNBA next for our WNBA fans, but uh, with with Europe being leading 10.5 to 5.5, they had a comfortable lead, but you know, stranger things have happened. Match play was on Sunday. The United States had a chance to come back. And uh, what what really impressed me about the Europeans, I had a chance, I, I found a place uh, to sit at uh, the second hole, which was a par three. And so after each tee off, as the players would walk up the hill to go onto the green, every every group that came was greeted by chants of USA and a lot of big cheers for the United States. And so the European players were, you know, playing in a, in a golf event that was very... Uh, Adverse. Yes, there were a few European fans there, but they had to lock in and focus because, you know, it was like walking into a, a gym of your opponent that everybody is for the other team. And so uh, I, I was just so impressed the way the Europeans continued to keep their composure, even in that 
situation on Sunday and continued to hit big putts like they had on Saturday afternoon. And it was, you know, even though it was disappointing as an American to see USA not perform well, it was very impressive to watch uh, the performances of the European players as they as they locked it up on Sunday afternoon. It was, and it's really, uh, you know, when you take the long view of it, it's it's good for women's sports when there's international success for different athletes. With the LPGA Tour, it was founded in the United States, and for many decades, Americans completely dominated the tour. They won every major for, you know, years and years and years and years. I mean, that was it, it was very rare for a non-American to win a major. And that started the the, the course start, or the the whole tide started to turn really a little bit in the late seventies and into the early eighties, and really it was the nineties though before you really started to see a, a lot more success from players from other countries to the tour. So now the LPGA Tour is is a completely global tour. You have the best female athletes in golf from all over the world compete on this tour. And the tour itself has changed. It used to be almost completely domestic-based. And now you have so many events that are in other countries, including the Asian countries. There's there's um, a, a, a lot of advertising dollars mm-hmm. that come from those Asian countries. So from for the health of professional women's golf, a globally strong game is uh, is a real asset. And one of the other things about Europe is I, I feel like Europe, other than Annika Sorenstam, she's been the biggest star of Europe, and she was an assistant captain on this team, and, boy, she had something to do with this. Trust me. She, she <laughs> was giving a lot of good tips, and she was helping players with their swings and helping with strategy and everything. But other than her, Europe, I think, kind of – feels a little bit, I don't want to say invisible, but a little bit overlooked on the tour because it is a domestic tour in the United States, so the Americans tend to be favored in events. And then the Asian players, specifically South Korean players, have played so well. This was Europe's chance to shine. And for them to be, you know, for, for one week, they were the story. And I think that's great in terms of their ability to get sponsorships, which is a big part of uh, professional golf, and to get a little bit more media coverage back home. So I understand American fans being like, oh, and, you know, grumbling, and there's all kinds of – in fact, in some ways, I kind of think it's great for the event because if America won, there wouldn't be nearly as many, you know, people getting into why did, you know, America not win. Mm-hmm. Um and and so in, in all the way around, it actually I think ended up being a good uh, event, um, even though I know that disappointed the USA. And if people want to watch uh, LPGA players and many of them that competed in the Solheim Cup, they're playing in the CN uh, Canadian Women's Open uh, this weekend, and that's already underway. So if you uh, uh, missed out on it or you want to build on what you saw at the Solheim Cup, you can watch that. But before we wrap this up, you and I have alluded to this, so I want to mention it. Because this event started in, in 1990 and started as a replica of the Ryder Cup and it's the Europeans against the Americans, the way the women's game has grown, there are so many great players from places other than the United States and Europe, specifically in Asia, in Australia, uh, but but primarily Asia. And so, you know, you and I talked about this at the event. It would be great to see some sort of change in format there uh, that that would incorporate the best players because we didn't get a chance to see the best top, you know, the however many, and you can quote the numbers, however many of the top ten players there because – 
they they aren't from the United States or Europe. However, there is going to be an event that is like a, a team event that takes the best from each country, and that's that's being put together. And you can describe that better, uh, Michelle. Describe that a little bit. Yeah, that's called the International Crown, and what it'll be is the top four ranked players from each of the top eight ranked countries. In other words, the ranking system in in professional golf is the Rolex World Rankings. And so they'll take the top eight countries based on how well their individual players are, and then they take the top four. So, for instance, the United States, if it happened right now, um, it would be Stacey Lewis, Christy Kerr, Paula Kramer, and Angela Stanford. They're the top four ranked Americans. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be those eight countries and their top four players competing in a team event. That'll be next summer in July in, in greater Baltimore area. And so that event, I think, will be, it'll be nice. I hope it catches on because they've tried to do some other team events, but they did them at the end of the year. And I just don't think people, for the most part, are watching much golf in November and December. Uh, I think the fact that it's going to be right in the middle of the LPGA season will help, and I hope it catches on because that's going to truly give us a chance to have the best players in the world all in a team event. And frankly, I'm I kind of would like to see we we sometimes we hear a lot of and and I don't always think it's fair, but the idea that the the Asian players are like robots, you know, that they don't show a lot of emotion, that they don't show a lot of personality. Well, when you talk to them, it, it, you know, we get a chance to see a little bit behind the scenes. I Believe me, MB Park feels a lot of emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us reporters became very fond of her, watching how she dealt with all the, the crush or the pressure of, of, of the British Open and seeing her the, a little bit more of the real person. Well, I, I think a team event will bring that out more. I actually look forward to the idea of seeing the top four South Korean players. And there won't be any captains, so I look forward to seeing the four of them on a team together and mm-hmm. seeing them kind of yell and high-five and stuff. I, I I really think that could be a lot of fun, and I just very much hope that the event gains some traction mm-hmm. with fans and fans find it interesting. And then the Solheim Cup is a different animal because it's 12 players and captains, and it has a little bit more. Obviously, the history is not ancient, <laughs> but it, it does go back to 1990. And I'm hoping between those two events, it gives people maybe who aren't normally that into women's golf. Those are two events I'd like to maybe see more non-golf fans get into just because they're different, they're fun, they have mm-hmm. a they have a different vibe to them. Well, and and even with my experience with it, you know, I'm going to be watching all those players much more closely now because I've gotten to see them play in person and got to see a little bit of their personality. I went to the practice rounds the day before it started, you know, got a few autographs and pictures and things like that. I would really encourage that from people too. If you're not a huge golf fan, that's those are the kind of the touch point events to get involved in. And if you, you know, if you have time to plan, as Michelle said, it's next July in Baltimore uh, is that international event which which uh, should shape up to be a, a really exciting event and fun to see uh, the best golfers from around the world competing in a team format. So um, I, I was glad to be able to have that experience and to be able to, to share it and see you there, Michelle, and uh, definitely going to be keeping an eye uh, very closely on the LPGA in, in the upcoming weeks and months. And Let's, I was uh, going to say when when sure. you call up when you call up the uh, if you you look at the scores from the Canadian Open this week you're uh-huh. you're 
it means more to you, doesn't it? Because sure. you're like, oh, there's Angela Stanford. She didn't play so well last week, and now she's – I hear that from so many people. Mm-hmm. And I always say, even if you get a chance to go out to uh, – and this is true. You and I talk about this with, with the same way with women's basketball. If you get a chance to go to the event, yes. it, it humanizes the people. You get a chance to see them a little bit more as real people. With golf, I always say if you get a chance to go to those earlier days and get some autographs and, you know, even have some conversations with people. I think that it makes you more interested because they become real people. And then when you're, then when you're watching tournaments, you know, a little bit, it's not just like you're watching um, the golf, you're watching the person playing Mm -hmm. golf. And that makes a difference. Same way with hoops though. I mean, I I think it's the same thing getting, getting, and, and that leads us right into the WNBA. It does. And, And just on that point, um, you know, in addition to the players, I had a, a really cool opportunity. Uh, Terry Gannon was uh, one of the announcers, the host for the television coverage, and I've worked with him on WNBA Finals uh, the last couple of years. And so I stopped in to see him, and I got a chance to meet uh, Judy Rankin, who is just a, a pioneer in women's golf, and she is one of those voices that has transcended uh, men's and women's golf. You hear her, uh, whether you tune in to men's or women's events or whatever, and she's so knowledgeable and so uh, so well-spoken. And just, I got a chance to shake her hand and, and tell her that, you know, every time I hear her on a golf event, I learn something. And I think that's um, some of the highest praise that you can give to uh, somebody in that position in television. And so I just was able to meet her and appreciate her and thank her for all she does. And so that was that was pretty special for me as well. But just as you're saying, you know, I, I you and I agree, and, and I'm sure all of our, our fans listening, that when you go to a women's sports event, you appreciate the athleticism and the skill and the personalities even more when you can be there and see them and meet them and, and just even just be afar and, and cheer on what they do. So I, I would encourage people that are, are fans of a particular sport to, you know, broaden your, broaden your interests and uh, check out some more sports. But uh, let's, let's take that pause and, and a transition here to WNBA. And I know we're going to wrap it up here in the last 10 minutes or so and also at the end talk a little bit about uh, the college seasons starting, but the WNBA race uh, is is nearing an end, and uh, you know things are are still up in the air in the Eastern Conference. Uh, but uh, well, they're up in the air on both sides. But let's talk let's talk a little bit about the Western Conference first, where um, you know Minnesota is in first place, and they had a ten game winning streak through the end of July and into August, but then. They lost four of five, including at home to Washington and Tulsa. Uh, last This week they bounced back with a win against Connecticut. But, uh, you know, as we look at that number one spot in the Western Conference, they will play L.A. two times in their final eight games. And um, L.A., on the other hand, uh, had a six-game winning streak uh, until they lost to Seattle this week. So uh, there's that part of it. Then there's the scratch-your-head, what's going on with Phoenix component of the Western race and Seattle overcoming all their injuries and really making a play here at the end. What are your thoughts on the uh, the Western Conference race? Yeah, uh, boy, a lot is uh, is still to be decided. I think overall, I think Minnesota is still your best overall team. 
and not just the Western Conference, but in the WNBA. But they did have some real hiccups, and I think part of that is the two things that we saw that hurt the Lynx last year when they lost to uh, the Indiana Fever in the WNBA Finals is they did not play defense the way they're capable of playing defense. And I can see, actually, Brenda, how that happens when you're such a good offensive team, and I would say borderline great. When they when they are clicking, they are a great offensive team. And Absolutely. I think sometimes you can, you know, you can become a little bit. Maybe maybe you rely a little bit too much on. Okay, you know, if we're not if we're not just having a great defensive night, it's okay. We can always outscore somebody. Well, we saw. The, the combination of, boy, when the offense doesn't click in, you're not playing defense the way you need to in game three last year where they just got blown out yeah. um, at, at Indianapolis. So I think there's a little bit of that lingering probably in the players' minds and Cheryl Reeves' mind of, hey, remember how this hurt us last year when we didn't play defense as well as we need to. And then there's just the hunger component. I mean, it you can talk about how – um, you know how important every game is, but when you're, you know, the Lynx know they're in the playoffs. They're not, they're they're a very good team. They've had two years of success going to the finals. I think it can be a little bit harder to maintain that hunger through, you know, talk, the the dog days of the mm-hmm. WNBA, if you will. Sure. Especially when we know that those players, you know, play so much all year long. So. Their bodies are a little tired now. Their minds are a little tired right now. And and let's say they face a team that is, you know, really is kind of clinging to the, you know, hope of getting to the postseason. It can their the opponent sometimes maybe has a little bit more desperation on their side. They do have desperation on their side, and maybe that translates into a little bit of an edge. Uh, I think. What happens, though, is, uh, and, and I think probably we've seen this with the Lynx, it gives them a little bit of a wake-up call and to say, okay, it's, you know, we're rounding into the end of the regular season and we really want to, to win the West. We want to have that home court advantage. We want to, you know, have an, another chance at winning a title. And so I think what you're probably going to see from the Lynx the rest of the way through is a, is a little bit sharper team. That said, uh, LA is a very good team too, and they want the same thing. They want that support advantage. Um, Phoenix has been a hard team to read. They've had a coaching switch. Um, they've at times played, um, you know, in their new regime. They've played some surprisingly good <laughs> defensive games, and so we we have to see. I mean, how how is what is the the if you will the quarter the sort of uh, new look Phoenix team is it really a new look is it going to hold up is it going to be the team that we're going to see throughout the rest of the regular season and the postseason? Well, and uh, and with Phoenix, you know they've they've lost twice to Seattle in the month of August, and you know that's that's a team that has overcome uh, tremendous injuries, and you have to uh, just take your hat off to Brian Agler and the job that he's doing and Tina Thompson and the year she is having in her, her last season, uh, in the WNBA. So Phoenix has to play Seattle again tonight. And then as you look at their schedule ahead, they play at Atlanta at Chicago and at LA in their last eight. So, you know, the question is, can, can they get, uh, you know, they, they should be, they should be in the playoffs, Right, because uh, it looks as though San Antonio and Tulsa are the two teams that are going to be out the way that Seattle is playing. But it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of opportunity for 
Phoenix to get on a roll because they, they have these tough road games here in the last stretch before they go in the playoffs. On the other hand, if they put it together and use the talent that they have on this team, they could establish some momentum going into the playoffs. So I, I think that's I think it's really interesting, especially those games with Phoenix at Atlanta, at Chicago, at LA in their last eight to see how they perform in those games. Yeah, and, and you do have to give Seattle a lot of credit. Without Sue Bird and without Lauren Jackson, it looks like they're going to nab that other playoff spot mm-hmm. and keep their string going of playoff appearances. And then give Tina Thompson, who this is her last season in the WNBA, give her a chance to you know have a, a postseason appearance and her, as she um, winds up a definitely a Hall of Fame um, basketball career so I, I got to give Brian Agler a lot of credit for yeah. what he's able to do with that team and then if you go over to the east mm-hmm. I everybody's excited about Chicago and and, right. and they should be because we've watched this team kind of not not quite be good enough not quite be good enough we know how good a player Sylvia Fowles is mm-hmm. um, we've seen the the growth of Courtney Vandersloot as a point guard Epiphany Prince is a very good player well they got the missing piece and Elena Deladon, and yep. she has had some health issues, but overall, I think she's been the rookie of the year, and yep. and yep. she has gotten people, and in fact, I've gotten some emails from people who said, hey, I'm not really a WNBA fan. They're kind of grudgingly, yeah, I'm not really a fan, but right. hey, I really right. like Elena Deladon, and I'm like, well, guess what? I think you're becoming a WNBA fan, because <laughs> she's a WNBA player. So she's bringing some fans in, yes. and and then we have a lot of, you know, injuries are a big part of what's gone on in the East. And we've had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things have kind of the bottoms kind of fallen out in Connecticut after uh, Mike Tebow's departure and players not necessarily being happy. And Donovan kind of, I think, stepped into a hornet's nest there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, at this point, the team that seems the most stable um, in the East would be, of all things, <laughs> Chicago, the team that's never made the playoffs yeah. before. Yeah, and I, you know, had a chance to watch on live access uh, their game against Minnesota, and what an exciting game! I wish that would have been on network television. You know, Elena Deladon hit the big three-point shot. I mean, just huge three-point shot to uh, send it into overtime. It was just, it was a great game, and you had to, you know, have in the back of your mind that could be a look at the WNBA Finals. And, uh, boy, there if that is the case, if that game is a precursor, uh, it should be a fantastic series. Now that's way getting the cart way ahead of the horse, uh, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of games to be played here in the final games of the season, and then playoffs to be had. But that was a, that was a great game, and uh, it was. Uh, I would be really interested to know how many people ended up watching that on on live access because uh, because of the potential playoff implications. But um, uh, any other thoughts on the WNBA before we wrap that up and look ahead to college sports? Well, obviously, Atlanta and Indiana are teams that both dealt with a lot of injuries. Atlanta is still has a winning record. Indiana doesn't, but they went to the you know they they really struggled with how many people they've had hurt. But the one thing you kind of have to look at, Brenda, is um, Chicago right now, as I said, appears to be the the best team in the East, but they're by far not the most experienced team in the East when we're talking about the playoffs because they don't have any. Yes. And so you got to look at Atlanta with Angel McCautry and Indiana with Tamika Ketchings and all the playoff experience those two have had. 
maybe they're going to limp a little bit into the postseason, but that's where, you know, those short playoff series, um, you know, mm-hmm. with best of three, you know, it, it's not, you know, it's certainly possible that we could see a, a more familiar face in the finals as well in, in terms of an Indiana or, or an Atlanta in the finals. So it's really going to be up to Chicago to say, okay, now if, we, if they continue out this really good regular season, we're going to have to overcome the fact that we haven't, we don't have this uh, experience in the postseason in order to, you know, to go as far as probably, you know, I know they would like to. I'm sure they would love to have a chance to meet um, whoever it is, which, which it's going to be quite a battle <laughs> in the West. Uh, but that's going to take them doing something that uh, that other teams that they're facing have already done. Yes. Yes, uh, there's uh, so much to be said for experience, but you know, mm-hmm. so many of these players play in in Europe and other opportunities to win championships. So you know, there there, there are those factors as well. But at, you know, yeah. the Chicago Sky itself has not. So it, it will be interesting to see how they perform as we hit head down the stretch and uh, these games. Each game gets so important. So uh, Michelle and I will be back to talk about that throughout the WNBA season. You know, if, if you follow us on Twitter at Women's Sports Central, uh, send us a tweet. Let us know who you think is uh, going to be there in the finals of the WNBA finals coming up here in the next day uh, or how things are going to play up. Uh, you know, play out in the playoffs. We'd love to hear your opinion. Those of you that uh, join us on these shows, we appreciate your feedback. And before we go, Michelle, um, the college uh, sports season is around the corner. Uh, volleyball, uh, University of Texas is preseason ranked number one coming off their national championship year. I know you're going to get a chance to talk to Jared Elliott uh, after this, uh, but what can we expect from the volleyball season? And then if you can let people know on ESPN.com or ESPNW what things you'll have coming out that they can watch for. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of interesting with obviously volleyball and, and women's soccer getting underway. And, and two things you, or two teams you'll notice that are in the top three in both the volleyball uh, coaches preseason poll and my colleague uh, Graham Hayes's uh early season power rankings is you've got Stanford and Penn State in the top three and in volleyball Penn State um, which is you know won multiple national championships they're number two in the preseason poll with Stanford three Hmm. in Graham's rankings in soccer Stanford's number two and Penn State's three Hmm. the team that's at the top of Graham's soccer poll won't surprise anybody that is that is um, North Carolina and then as you mentioned Texas uh, the defending champions are the top at, at the volleyball poll what Will has every week on ESPNW, and you'll also see it on the ESPN Colleges pages, we'll have um, you know, features, we'll have power rankings. Uh, we try to you know, keep a, a weekly um, tally, if you will, of, of how everybody's doing. Sort of, so if you're not really that into either of those sports, or maybe you're not into them yet, you know, maybe you're going to wait a little bit more until we're closer to conference season for you know, this particular for volleyball, you'll have a chance to go back through and kind of, you know, look at the power rankings and everything. So we hope to kind of keep people updated that way throughout the season. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because here we are um, ready to, ready to start the school year. I kind of feel mm-hmm. like, wow, it's the, the summer's blown by so fast with uh, everything we've been covering, but it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, um, it's we'll have a chance on this show to sort of keep people updated on on those other sports as well because there's some phenomenal athletes uh, playing volleyball and and soccer uh, that are getting ready to start their seasons. 
Looking forward to it. Uh, glad to be back and to have this chat with you, Michelle, after we've been away for the summer uh, doing so many other things. Thank you all for listening to us and for joining us. And we'll be back on a more regular basis starting this fall and be covering all the college sports and WNBA and LPGA and all that's going on in the world of women's sports. So on behalf of Michelle Vopel, I'm Brenda Van Lingen. We hope you enjoyed your summer. It's not quite over, but uh, we'll help uh, wrap it up with you and uh, start with the fall sports seasons, talking about it here on Women's Sports Central.